Kia ora, I'm Vincent Herringer and welcome to This Climate Business. Every week we talk to people turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Follow us on social media and please rate the show as it helps others to find us. Hope you enjoy the programme. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP, closed last week with a notable first, an agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. It's not quite the phase-out that most countries had wanted, and reflective perhaps of the influence of petrostates, including the host Dubai. Indeed, the chair of this year's COP is the head of an oil company, and the next COP is due to be held in Azerbaijan, another petrostate, and much under the thumb of Russia. Is copper swizz? Can it be trusted to restrict the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees, as it is claiming to do? Well, Rod Oram was there reporting for Newsroom, and I was lucky enough to grab Rod on the phone somewhere between France and Switzerland on holiday. So I apologise for the quality of the sound, but we did do our best. And season's greetings. We're taking a break from the podcast. We'll be having a holiday and back sometime in January towards the end, I suspect. Thanks so much for listening and all your positive comments and the questions that do come in uh, to me by email and through LinkedIn. I really appreciate people listening to this little project that we've got going and I hope it's useful to you. Meri kerehemite. Rod, you've mentioned that there was a difference between your experience of this COP and previous COPs, what was what were the differences that you experienced? The main one was I felt there was a real intensity and focus on this one, as if um, all the people who'd come to COP were even more conscious of the perilous, parlous state we're in with the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, too many Ps there. <laughs> um, and um, precarious, perhaps, was, could be another one. That's right. It's all of those things. Um, and how even more urgent it all was, and he, how even more difficult it was um, because uh, of the um, very considerable um, presence of petrostates and, um, and um, um, oil and gas companies and the rest. So there was that an intensity there, which I... Um, felt quite different to me Mm. than the previous two cops I was at, uh, 26 in Glasgow and 27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And and yet it was even more surprising in that there was twice as many people, more than twice as many people at those other two cops. And um, we were rather more spread out um, because the campus, if you like, the huge complex of the blue zone, i.e. the negotiation and and the main intergovernment area, um, plus other pavilions, and then the green zone, uh, which was, um, you know, more pavilions, more programs um, to which the general public could get into. And then what you you'd call the city zone, i.e. all sorts of really big conferences, um, COP-linked, COP-focused, happening out around the city. So even though there was that much going on and there were so many people, um, um, that was not – it didn't feel dissipated. It somehow felt more concentrated, um, even though it was over a bigger area and twice as many people. Does the urgency that is now around us, surrounding us on climate, is that driving discussions beyond climate to other issues around nature-based services, around biodiversity loss? Is there uh, momentum 
being driven at the sort of pointy end by climate, but it's inviting other conversations about sustainability? Absolutely. Um, and coming through in all kinds of ways. So this was the first COP where nature um, was a particular focus, um, as was agriculture. And, and um, although those two are very closely linked, um, um, the subject areas um, embraced by those two broaden out in a sense away from each other. So uh, although nature-based solutions um, are very important in agriculture, and there's a big, very big transformation underway in agriculture to make sure that the way we use land um, and then how we break it in for farming, how we then use it for farming, works more with nature than it does now and less against it. That's that's where nature and food and farming come together. But um, nature as um, uh, a solution to climate in other ways, whether it be forestry, uh, reforestation, or increased biodiversity, um, or where we think about um, nature in terms of oceans, for example, those were all far more to the fore, very explicitly uh, on the agenda. But really, completely fascinatingly, those were the areas of the negotiations which really struggled because the negotiators found very early on that um, there was nothing in the way of metrics, for example, um, to, that could you could measure um, ecosystem health or resilience um, in a consistent way. Mm. And it, initially, in the first week, the negotiations really bogged down on that. And then in the end, the final agreement could still only deal at a high level. Uh, sort of a conceptual level, but put in place um, a number of programs which will now be um, pursued through the United Nations Framework on Climate Change um, to really try and drill down and develop uh, the methodologies, um, the ways you would measure things um, to be able to take these subjects on to a much greater depth at the next COP. So very significant from that point of view. I don't want to and then... Oh, sorry. Well, and then you yeah. carry on. Well, then the other one I really want to mention is that although um, COPs have been talking about just transitions for uh, a long time and for indigenous uh, knowledge and indigenous rights for a long time, again, those um, were far um, more to the fore, not completely integrated at all yet um, in um, climate issues, climate solutions, um, but beginning to become more so. Um, and so that greater integration integration of those very crucial aspects, um, because um, there are great um, methodologies, lessons, opportunities um, to learn from all of those to be able to um, really deal with the extraordinary complexity of climate issues because you know you really require whole of society responses because that's the only way you're going to get um, behavior change that then fast forwards the technology change um, mm. and and all the other complex ways that um, the solutions and the problems interact with each other. The headline decision had to do with phasing out fossil fuels. To what extent is that a victory or is it a ferric victory given just the influence, uh, as you've mentioned, of the petrostates in this year's COP? 
it would have been marvelous if there had been um, far more explicit language, even better, um, some real goals set in that in terms of what rate of um, phase out that might be, um, because that would have focused people's minds far more and governments and businesses and the like. Um, however, that was always completely unrealistic because the fight back, the pushback um, from the major um, petro-state nations, um, but also um, major multinational oil and gas companies um, mm. is ferocious. This was a very interesting COP because it was the first time, for example, that the chief, the chairman and chief executive ExxonMobil had ever come to a COP. And he didn't do himself any favors at all because his basic line was that the world had kind of um, over-invested in renewables and, and was ignoring the potential of fossil fuels to continue um, to, to contribute to climate solutions. Jeez, he's and, a brave man turning up to COP with that message oh yeah and i still can't work out i i'm not sure whether he got uh, or even people close to him whether that was just sort of a hard line sort of negotiating strategy mm. or whether he really is that blind um to the issues and I will come back to that subject in a moment because it's really fascinating to um try to think through that in terms of the host country and Indeed, and the person, um, Sultan uh, Ahmed uh, Al-Jaber, who was the um, president of COP, the chair of COP, and at the same time, um, chief executive of um, Abu Dhabi's National Oil Company. Um, but um, that um, was a very considerable um, feature of this COP different from others, where not only was the representation from fossil fuel lobbyists by by far the largest yet, mm. um, but they were more explicitly involved um, in in the debate, in the conversations um, than in past COPs. And so the language around phasing out was predictable, but it just give us for a moment what might have been the alternative. What was initially proposed? Um, more than 100 countries um, had come to COP uh, with the intention of, um, with the determination to get very strong language on a phase out of fossil fuels. Um, um, and of course, that's not what we got. But I think it's also important to set some context here. First of all, completely remarkably, um, how um, fast fossil fuels in some language or other have um, reached such prominence in COPs after all these decades. So the, literally the very first time that the world word fossil fuel turned up in a cover agreement, as the final agreement's called, of a COP was in Glasgow, um, COP26 and 2021. And that only applied to coal and a phase um, down of coal, not even mm. phase out. Mm. Then the following year um, in Egypt, COP27 last year, um, about 80 countries had come to that COP intent to get language um, on fossil fuels into the final text and failed completely. There wasn't a mention of it. So this year, as I say, more than 100 company, countries had come with that intention. And um, it didn't even make it into the um, first draft um, that the um, president of COP and his staff um, had pulled together, Al Jaber. And that's 
really not a surprise because how fiercely opposed um, um, oil producing nations, particularly led by Saudi Arabia, but the other um, really ferociously focused ones uh, and real hardliners are Iran and Iraq, um, Venezuela's in there too as another one. Um, so huge, huge opposition. Mm. Um, I think it's completely realistic to say you could have held out for fossil fuel language, but you wouldn't have got anything in the final agreement. So the, the, the final language was really interesting because it was talking about a rapid transition um, um, to renewables from fossil fuels, but placing the onus not just on producing nations, but on consumers too. That does sound like a sop to take the heat off the producers, but on the other hand, there's an awful lot of people out there still burning fossil fuels um, and not putting enough effort into considering how they might transition away from them. So I believe it's actually important to talk about both the supply and the demand side of the equation by talking about producers and consumers. So I think that was a positive step forward. Um, also, it applies to um, all three of the fossil fuels. However, um, language did creep in there about gas as a transition fuel, um, as a, a lower emissions fossil fuel than um, oil and coal. And that's um, deeply problematic because, um, as we know, um, major fossil, major gas producing countries and companies um, push that transition line very um, strongly. That's why our new government in New Zealand is determined and will um, reverse the ban on offshore um, exploration for gas. Um, but um, it still is ignoring the fact we have to very drastically reduce fossil fuel emissions because they are the leading cause of a of the climate crisis. Um, and therefore, to talk about um, gas as a transition fuel just means that we'll be get burning gas longer and remain more reliant on it and other fossil fuels than we would it, the, compared with if we pushed far harder on renewables. Mm. So it's dangerous language. Mm. The U.S. is splendidly conflicted in all this because mm. on one hand, the U.S. is the largest nation in terms of oil and gas production, and yet it was pushing for language on fossil fuels. Um, you know, John Kerry was quite explicit about that as the U.S. climate envoy. But then Kerry sort of wanders a bit off message and um, can um, – can say things that sound like he's thinking about gas as a transition fuel. But crucially, he's also talks about carbon capture and storage, which is another huge red herring. In that case, the technology doesn't exist um, to be able to do um, large scale economically um, air capture of carbon um, from carbon dioxide, as you would have to do if you were still going to burn fossil fuels and then somehow claw back that carbon. And um, so the U.S. Um, is still straddling on this. And, you know, here are, there are plans afoot in the States to increase by, I think, another five or seven major um, uh, LNG export terminals um, from um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico coast. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, this it's completely extraordinary how 
how muddled and conflicted the US is. Mm. But no, no surprise because they've got such large productions, so such powerful companies involved in all that. Given that so many states talk out both sides of their mouth, you you could understand and forgive people for being cynical about COP and about the the end result of COP. What what? Where are you on that level of cynicism and what do you think will happen next as a result of this final communique? One of the most um, helpful things I, um, pieces of language I picked up at COP um, was actually not at COP. It was about COP from Bill McKibben, um, the extraordinarily um, long running and very very, um, astute journalist and um, campaigner on fossil fuels in the United States. And he said, COP is the score, is the score, it's not the game. And um, so COP reminds us each year what the state of play is globally on climate. Um, and yes, there's a lot of gaming going on there, but there's an awful lot happens outside COP. That's where the real game is. So I th- find that helpful, but I also find it very helpful to um, keep reminding myself that COP um um, is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate, and the COP is the Conference of the Parties, and those parties now consist of 198 countries. Now, because um, over almost 30 years now of COPs, it's been impossible to have any kind of debate and discussion and decision on rulemaking and how they might make decisions at COP, i.e., does it, um, could it, could you reach agreement that gets into the final text with a kind of a super majority of countries, but not all signing up. Well, this is something I learned this year at this COP. Saudi Arabia, right from the very first outset, always um, refused to allow any discussion about those um, decision-making agreement that needed to be reached. That's why COP um, has to be a unanimous decision um, that every country has to sign up to everything in the final text. So that's very difficult to do, obviously. And I still think it's quite remarkable that we had major petro states um, going along with the language, um, particularly around fossil fuels on this one. But um, it does, COP creates this intensity of focus on the issues and starts to really push the boundaries, um, as we discovered on nature and farming, um, that once you start getting into negotiating those things, you realize that you don't have the language, you don't have the tools to progress that. Mm-hmm. So what then happens is in the United Nations framework, and um, once there is an agreement on a new subject, you start to see work programs emerge um, that then between COPs um, try to develop the knowledge develop the issues. Um, And those work programs are now many in Legion and lots of people are involved in them. So I think COP's really important to, as a way, um, a very important way of keeping kind of a coherent framework, because that's what its name is, um, of all of these complex issues and how they relate together. Um, And I think it's really important to try to keep um, the overwhelming um, range of issues and the interdependence of issues and the conflict in issues um, grouped together in that kind of framework. (laughs) So that's that's why I think um, COP 
um, is a fundamentally important exercise. And it's very frustrating to be there. It's very frustrating to watch from afar when you really, really, really want a much um, stronger language, um, much bigger commitments. But then you have to realize um, that as long as COP is sending some really powerful signals, as long as it's constantly putting pressure on countries and players within the countries to sort of wise up on the issues and however much resistance they're putting up to them, you know, they eventually begin to break their resistance, but begins to weaken a bit. Mm. Um so it's a, and like a lot of things in sustainability, it's the direction of travel uh, that at least you can claim as a victory. If the, the momentum is not yeah. fast enough, the acceleration is not there, but at least the direction of travel. And, and I yeah. should say, uh, you know, I use the word phase out. That would be the dream outcome. Transition away was the technical word that was yeah. finally agreed on. Yeah. And um, this was a, a hugely important year because under the Paris Agreement, countries have to come back with their next nationally determined contributions, their next climate pledges by 2025. So some kind of language around fossil fuels and transitioning out of them had to come out of this group. Mm -hmm. So it would influence um, the decisions that countries make. And countries will make all kinds of decisions from largely ignoring it to being deeply committed to it. Um, but it's a really important signal. Mm -hmm. But then the signal is also being sent um, to financial markets and technology developers and all these other people out there. And I think the one thing that I'm going to be trying to keep an eagle eye on is will we start to see um a revaluation about the of about the long-term market capitalization of an oil and gas company or the whole sector um in the in light of this language in light of this direction of travel and it, it won't happen suddenly but i think we will start to see some deep analysts saying you know, not as much oil and gas is going to be burnt because in the coal sector, they've kind of come to that conclusion already, analysts and companies. Um, and and therefore, let's pull back on these market valuations. Mm. And you'll only get a few really astute people out there. Carbon Tracker has been saying this for a long time about, you know, the stranded assets that are out there and, and the market needs to realize them. But when you start to see um, mainstream um, um, stock market analysts um, and major investment banks um, starting to articulate those messages, I don't think it'll, it, it won't necessarily come suddenly or all of a rush. Um, but once it does start, I think you'd start to see some momentum building hmm. from that. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I, I, I mean, Larry I Fink no sort of signaled this a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, you don't get much bigger in terms of private equity than Larry Fink of BlackRock. So yeah. you would think that that signal is already starting to be sent, right? Well, yes, but we've also seen um, BlackRock um, waver backwards and forwards on this over the last couple of years. Uh, I wouldn't say in boots and all, but fairly committed on that and then backing off again. Mm -hmm. um, and now signs of sort of beginning to focus again. Um, of course, being so large, they need to um, <laughs> straddle <laughs> um, because they need to offer um, a range of views because they've got a wide diversity of investors. 
Um, so you're being very so, gracious. I think they're they're a hedge fund for a reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, just quickly, um, Rod, this was the first COP that uh, Simon Watt represented. Simon Watt is the climate change minister now for New Zealand. That was the first COP that he represented us at. How did he conduct himself? Um, he was only sworn in as a minister, I think, about 48 hours before he turned up in Dubai. <laughs> and so his whole um, de demeanor was that, look, I'm new in the job. I I'm here to learn and listen. So tell me what you think. So he held a, um, at least one, I think possibly there might have been a, a later um, round table with um, New Zealand delegates, because this was by far the largest number um, we've ever had at a COP. Um, and um, he was, um, you know, listened to what they had to say and made some useful comments. Um, but uh, he was keeping a very low profile, um, as was New Zealand generally. Uh, I'm afraid we are uh, well off the pace. We've got, you know, some terrific people in Ministry of Foreign Affairs and similarly some climate-related negotiators out of places like MPI doing things that are a bit more land-based and agricultural-based. Um, and, you know, playing the traditional New Zealand role in these negotiations of um, having no, um, uh, not pushing a particular agenda that suits us, but just sort of trying to um, help people find language to work through issues. And then you know, we still do that job. Um, but we were just signing up to everybody else's um, initiative of, of, about, you know, uh, land and farming or about, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you name it. And, or you know, green finance. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't have a country pavilion there with programs, um, hopefully in conjunction with other countries and other other. Um, elements of society and um, just to sort of tell the message about what we were doing as a country mm. we had a very very low profile and 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 that's comparing us also with countries with a similar population to us mm. um, that are much more engaged on these issues publicly yeah. than we are rod i'm going to speak out of school but i uh, noticed last time when you returned from cop you were d demonstrably down about the prospects for uh, moving to a, a low-carbon world, and in particular New Zealand's ability to embrace the opportunity. Are you still as uh, downbeat about that? How, how are you feeling, uh, if we can talk about feelings? I actually felt um, more energised and still do. I'm just now a sort of week after the fact, and I'm still hopefully still finding, sounding quite energized by all this. I think because of the intensity of it, and um, because more than ever, um, there was good representation across society, um, I, I found it a, a, a deeply interesting cop. Um, but also, um, as ever, you, I have to preface this by saying, of course, it's not big enough, fast enough, committed enough, you know, and all those other things. Um, but I do, and there's horrendous pushback. I mean, you see the stuff that's going on in the UK now. Yeah. You know, the UK had been a terrific leader on climate since it was the first country to come up uh, with a climate change committee equivalent to our commission um, and something sort of similar to our uh, our Zero Carbon Act, but not obviously couched in exactly those terms because it came well before the concept. Um, 
Uh, and, and now we have a, a right of centre government that's rowing back madly on that. It's trying to exploit um, every last bit of oil and gas it can out of the North Sea. Is Earlier this year, it signed off on um, giving approval for the first new coal mine in the UK for, I think it's something like 40 years. Um, um, so there's lots of backsliding there and it isn't fast enough, but I just feel there's so much going on. There's a real bubbling up of ideas and energy um, across mm. so many sectors. Mm. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, more up <laughs> and enthusiastic, which isn't to say positive because I'm still saying, Look, guys, you know, this is, look how nature and climate are changing far faster than we humans are, right? So it's running away from us. Um, and it's even worse in New Zealand. If you look at um, the whole environmental um, regulatory landscape that this new government's talking about, uh, another three years before it's going to do its version of reforms of the RMA, um, and, and there was a superb piece by Gary Taylor of the Environmental Defense Society in the newsroom a couple of weeks ago, just laying out all the ways that um, this new government is planning to to push back on environmental regulations um, and, and ch changes for the better for them mm -hmm. and push them mm -hmm. back the other way. Mm -hmm. um, and farmers are still in New Zealand just not locking on to the greatest opportunity they're ever going to have in business, which is um, this huge transformation towards farming that works absolutely with nature and not against it. Mm. And they're still telling themselves that, oh, look, we're the you know lowest carbon or amongst the lowest carbon in the world per kilogram of meat or kilogram of milk solids. So it's up to the rest of the world to catch up with us. And completely ignoring that land use, um, farming and food are going off in a different direction. And we're going to need to scramble to catch up. And um, so I worry about all of those things. And there aren't enough voices in New Zealand. Um, we are spread very thin. Um, we have um, a political system which is not responding to all of this. Um, and so I'm not optimistic about that. But I, you know, I, I, I take my wins and my energy where I can find them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate your all of your mahi in the space, Rod, and thanks for reporting from uh, COP, and thanks to Newsroom for supporting your trip there and all the con contributions that people have made um, to help you get there. I think you you should experience a well-deserved break and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas. And to all of our listeners and Followers on uh, this podcast, a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Thank you for participating in the discussion around climate. And uh, we will see you in 2024. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anon.